Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. I've been in the family office world for 20 years and I've always been interested in how people make good investment decisions and if it's possible to teach these skills in the family office context. This podcast speaks to investment and business thought leaders as well as founders and experts in the investment world to hear their great stories and insights. I was looking forward to talking with today's guest because he has had the distinctive experience of running a large pension fund as well as a significant family office. Mark Anson is the CEO and CIO of Common Fund and is in the unique position to compare and contrast the different investment styles of pension funds, endowments, family offices, and traditional asset managers. We talk about his interesting background starting at Solomon Brothers, then running investment for CalPERS, the Bass Family Office, Nuveen, and Common Fund, among others. We also talk about why real trade ticket experience is necessary to become a good manager, his thoughtful and extensive research into measuring performance, including his practical concept of lagged beta, and what type of shoes you need in London. Please enjoy my intriguing conversation with Mark Anson. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or hosts should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. So first of all, I wanted to thank you for writing the handbook on alternative investments. It was immensely helpful to me when I was getting started with allocation. Well, you know how that came together. I, I was at CalPERS and I was in the first cohort that took the what's called the Kaya exam, Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst Program. And back then it was just a huge collection of papers that you had to gather and then read all these papers yourself. As I went through the program, I was like, gosh, wouldn't it be great if someone took all these papers and just summarized it into a book? We could use a book. And so I pitched that idea to someone and they said, oh, sure, Mark, have at it. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I thought about it. And so I sat down. It was a labor of love. It took about a year to write. Uh, and gosh, we were now on edition five or six. I don't even know what edition we're on now at this point. So it turned out to be far more successful than I ever had any idea it would be. Excellent. Just to give us a little bit about your early background and what your earliest interest in investing was. Sure. I couldn't quite decide in my early background. So I went both to law school and business school. I figured that if I could understand both the regulatory side of the financial markets and the economic side, that would be a pretty powerful combination. And eventually I worked my way to the trading desks of Sally, Solomon Brothers, back in the day, where I was on the equity derivatives desk. That was great training to start with investing. I love to say that when you look for good investors, you should always look for someone who's got what I call trade ticket experience. What do I mean by that? It means you know, when you're on the trading desk, you know, you're submitting a trade ticket with your name on it. And if that trade goes great, you get all the accolades and the rewards for it. But if that trade goes bad, there's no place to hide. You can't say, I actually didn't mean to do that. No, you know, your name's on that trade ticket. If that trade ticket goes toes up. You got to bear the cost and the scrutiny for that. So having that hardcore trade ticket experience is where I first began to build some of my investment ideas. And from there, from being a trader, I then moved over to the investment side to begin to actually invest. But when I think about where did I begin my humble beginnings as just a grunt on the trading desk, fighting for every basis point against Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley, that's where you got some scraped knuckles at the same time. Now, that was good experience to have, not only for the rough and tumble world of Wall Street, fighting for every basis point, but also getting that trade ticket experience and sweating those trades when your name's on the ticket. Was that during the Michael Lewis period? It was after the Michael Lewis period. That's, in fact, when Warren Buffett came in. It was the first time I got to meet Warren Buffett. I happened to meet him in the elevator and had the, took the opportunity, one of those classic elevator pitches, just to tell him who I was and what I was doing. It was a wonderful moment of about 20 seconds. 
What can you tell us about the culture at Solly back then versus how the street is today? The culture at Solly was changed dramatically. The treasury scandal, what was just added was a, a scandal and an embarrassment for the firm, a lot of egg on their face. So they wanted to bring in a number of people to try and clean up the image, which is how I got my job. They wanted a lawyer to actually be on the desk at all times. And so I started as a trader. Then I became what's called the registered options principal, which meant I was responsible for approving all options trading globally and for signing off on all the new accounts. And again, it was just part of the regime change with Solomon Brothers. Let's get people who actually have a clear regulatory view of the world actually on the trading desk make sure we get those people closer to what's actually going on in the activity. So I came in as part of that new regime to just reimagine the Solomon Brothers image and get it back up to the luster it had before. Interesting. So you've had a distinguished career and you're in the unique position to compare and contrast the various institutional structures, endowments, pension funds, family offices, and asset managers. And I think maybe it might be interesting for the audience if we took them one at a time and talk about what you found when you arrived at each one, what you saw as your mission, how you formed your team and strategy, and what lessons you learned at each. And maybe we'll start with CalPERS. What did you find when you were first sat in the seat there as a CIO? Probably I should take a step back and explain how I got to CalPERS, because that's a humorous story. So I was working as an asset manager, portfolio manager on Wall Street. At this time, I moved from trading to actually managing money. I was at a great firm called Oppenheimer Funds. Really enjoyed my time there. But I got a call from a recruiter and the recruiter said to me, hey, Mark, would you ever have any interest working for a pension plan, a public pension plan? And I thought for a moment and I responded honestly, no, can't imagine why I'd ever want to do that. And so the recruiter says to me, we're doing confidential screening right now. I can't tell you who our client is yet. But what if I told you it was the largest pension fund in the United States? And I thought for a moment, I said, largest one I know was in Sacramento, California. And the recruiter said, yeah, that's right. So without disclosing who this confidential client was, we were both knew we were talking about CalPERS. At that point, I just simply said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take a meeting with them. I'm not certain why they'd be interested in me. And it was just more out of curiosity at that point. And what CalPERS was looking to do at that time was to bring investment professionals into the investment house, people who actually had that trade ticket experience. And so through a series of conversations and many interviews later, that's how I got to be at CalPERS. Now, when I got to CalPERS and I had my first offsite meeting with my senior team, we sat down in, in a room on an offsite and I said to the senior team, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put a business plan together. And the senior team was like, a business plan? We're a pension fund. What do we need a business plan for? We got captive clients. We're just a pension plan. And my response was, no, actually, we're an investment company. We just happen to be owned by a pension plan. We have to be operating within a pension plan. But let's think of ourselves as an investment company. And if we do that, what do we need to do to elevate our game? And once we had our minds wrapped around, okay, let's think of ourselves as an investment company owned by or camped within a pension plan, we began to think of all the ways we would improve performance, managing the portfolio, how we would track better human capital. And so we built a business plan and then we began to think through it and trying to execute on it. So that was a fascinating learning experience to just trying to change a mindset. The one thing that Kelpers taught me better than any other place I've been is always focus on the liabilities. Every investor has a liability stream. Now, in a pension plan, it's very well measured. You have actuaries who will measure out that liability stream with the benefits payments for all the pensioners of the state of California. 
But it doesn't matter whether it's a public pension plan or an endowment or an foundation. They have their liability streams, which are their spending needs. If it's you and I, we have two liability streams, right? We have our own retirement we have to fund, and then our kids' college education, and hopefully someday we get them off the payroll. But that taught me at the outset that before you think about constructing a portfolio, focus on the liability stream, understand what liability stream you're trying to solve for and that you have to finance, then start to construct your portfolio. That was a valuable lesson that I had never learned anyplace else. I had never read in any textbook, and I would not have learned it had I not gone to CalPERS. Now, when you say thinking about CalPERS as an asset management business, one of the issues with family offices and endowments, pension funds, of course, is that they're not technically for-profit businesses. So how do you think about incentives? So when you think of incentives for individuals such as myself or you, there's really three things that, that people want. First, they do want to be rewarded economically. So trying to build in some form of incentive compensation. In fact, we did that at CalPERS. I'll come back to that in a moment. So that's one. Two, people want, really do want to take responsibility and ownership for something. So they, most people really want to step up and get some additional experience and actually be able to say, gosh, I actually did that. So you have to give them interesting things to work on and give them the ability to work on those things by delegating authority down to them. And unless people want to be at, at places where interesting things are happening, we have interesting investment ideas or inv interesting investment programs. So that's how you incent people. You do have to do it with economics, money. But at the same time, you, you have to give them some responsibility and authority so they actually feel like they're contributing. And then last, hopefully you can give them something interesting to work on. If you can do those three things in any organization, you'll be able to attract human capital to your organization. Now at CalPERS, I was there when we implemented the incentive compensation. And that was very difficult to do for a public pension plan. In fact, CalPERS was the first state pension plan to implement incentive compensation for the staff, i.e. bonuses tied to performance. That was not easy, but it took time to get that through the state legislature. There, there's a lot of stories I have, a lot of scar tissue in my knees from genuflections and asking nicely, please let us do this and here's why it would be important. But eventually, rational minds prevailed. The state legislature and the CalPERS board both understood why this is important to CalPERS and making it a first-class organization. And eventually, we got that incentive compensation implemented into the CalPERS Investment Office. It took a few years, though. What were the particular challenges that you faced at CalPERS, and how did you think about constructing that portfolio? The, the, probably the most difficult part of CalPERS is that you're in a fishbowl. You know, it's a, it is a public plan, which means that investment hearings are just that. They're hearings. They're held in public forum. And plus, you have a lot of money. It's the largest pension plan in North America, South America. So it's the largest pension plan in the Western Hemisphere. So you have a lot of money that you're trying to manage. At the same time, you're doing it in a public format. So you're disclosing in advance pretty much what your game plan is. So that's a challenge. It's a challenge in terms of managing the sheer amount of capital. It's a challenge because you're presenting your investment recommendations to the CalPERS board in an open hearing so anyone could come in. You could go to a CalPERS meeting if you haven't been to one. And that was the difficulty, managing the sheer bulk of CalPERS as well as in the public forum. Nonetheless, there were things that we did at CalPERS that, that we're proud of to this day. One was building up private capital part of the CalPERS portfolio, allocating more to private equity, getting more into real estate and other private asset classes. That was critical to capture that long-term embedded liquidity premium that's attached to private capital. 
again, when you think of CalPERS, it is a multi-generational investment pool. It has to fund the pensioners not only of today, but tomorrow and 50 years from now. So thinking very long-term and building a strategic asset allocation that captures risk premium over the very long-term, that's one of the things we worked on very carefully and clearly at CalPERS. So again, the challenges were just the public nature of CalPERS, the sheer size. Occasionally, there might be some political pressure on CalPERS, no surprise. But the key part was putting together a very thoughtful, long-term asset allocation and then implementing that game plan. And what changes did you make to the allocation? Was increasing the allocation more towards illiquid asset classes, private capital. The liquidity premium that we all talk about is real. It is legitimate. In fact, here at Common Fund, we published a research paper about four or five years ago where we actually identify the liquidity premium that's attached to illiquid assets. Spoiler alert, you know, very quickly, we found that liquidity premium is about 3.5%. And that's the premium you get over and above public equity markets for committing capital to private equity and venture capital and other illiquid asset classes. So if you can be a liquidity provider to the market, and CalPERS can do that because they are a long-term multi-generational investors, they are liquidity providers, they should be able to capture some of that liquidity premium for the portfolio to help pay long-term pension benefits. And that was one of the things we realized and recognized at CalPERS, that we were liquidity providers to the market so we could take on more illiquidity in our portfolio. We could invest more in private equity and capture that liquidity premium and bring it into the portfolio to pay long-term benefits. That was one of the key changes we made. How do you think about the difference between strategic and tactical at such a large It's much easier to implement strategic. Because again, strategic is a long-term game plan meant to carry you not just this year, but next year and over the next five to 10 years. Tactical, you can look at tactical on a quarter-by-quarter quarter or year-to-year basis. You know, the problem with tactical is, is there's the temptation to start to market time. And that's always the risk. And you have to be very careful that when you're using tactical allocation, you're really analyzing economic data and you really have a very firm commitment that you think you need to overweight or underweight a particular asset class at any given time. Otherwise, you start to chase returns and you start to get into a little bit of market timing. And as we all know, market timing is like fool's gold. You chase it and you chase it and you keep mining it and mining it. And at the end of the day, you often end up empty-handed. Now, as a matter of point, CalPERS does have a long-term strategic gas allocation. They tend to review that annually just to make certain that they're on the right path. And CalPERS resists the temptation to market time. And that's not, we all have that temptation within us. It's not unique to CalPERS or myself or you. We all feel a little bit like, gosh, maybe I should overweight equities now and underweight bonds. Maybe I should be overweighting bonds and underweighting equities. That happens a lot. And again, if you can use tactical asset allocation, you have to be very certain that the adjustment you're going to make to your long-term strategic asset allocation is well-grounded in economic theory and analysis. Otherwise, you're just chasing the market. What did you think about their shift away from hedge funds? Hedge funds is very, are very difficult for a pension plan to invest in for a number of reasons. First, on the political side, hedge funds have very high fees. And that's difficult for anyone to stomach. You don't have to be a pension plan. It's just... Are the high fees that hedge fund managers charging you worth it? And remember, hedge fund managers collect that big incentive fee, the profit sharing fee, based on changes of net asset value of the hedge fund. So it doesn't mean they actually realize returns. It just means that the hedge fund, the value of the hedge fund has gone up and they take a piece of that. That's different than private equity. Private equity does have charge you an incentive fee, typically 20 to 25%, but it's based 
most cases on realized results. We will distribute money to you and we will take a piece of the money we've distributed to you, but it's actually cash we're giving back to you. So that's a big difference between private capital and hedge funds is private capital is taking a slice, an incentive fee off realized gains compared to hedge funds, which take a slice or an incentive fee off changes of net NAV without any actually increase in value to you, perhaps. And that, again, is very difficult for any investor to stomach. And so for CalPERS, they decided to pull the plug on it. Your next stop was across the pond at the BT pension scheme. What can you tell us about BT and maybe contrast them with CalPERS? First, it was a wonderful experience to, to live and work overseas. Yeah, it's uh, you get a view, for instance, in the United States, very different than what you get when you're actually living in the United States. And so that in itself is valuable. Second, London is a global center of commerce, not just for the investment or banking, but for many industries. And because of that, it is a much more international city than what you get in the United States. So just that exposure, just to a broader range of thinking and observations, which within the U.S. is big and as global as the U.S. may think it is, sometimes we're a bit more provincial in the way we, we view the markets or we view ourselves. So that first was eye-opening. The second was just to understand how a different culture works and thinks. Let me give you a great anecdote. So I get to London. I know I'm in a new environment. I'm moving from a CIO to a chief executive role. So that was a change too. And so I hire a coach, an executive coach, just to help me understand better how to get embedded in, in British society, how to think and how to work with, within the British commerce. And so I meet with my coach. And in our very first meeting, he looks me up and down. And he says to me, Mark, first thing you got to do is you got to get a proper pair of British shoes. I go, what? And he points to my shoes. And I was wearing loafers. I like to wear penny loafers. I like to wear slips-ons. So I get in and out of my shoes quickly. It's just who I am. No. Now, unbeknownst to me, and there's no way you're going to read this in any guidebook in London or any management textbook, but that's one of the things that they pick up on in London is shoes you wear. And so he pointed me to what they call these arcades, which are these alleyways with all sorts of shops. And there's a famous arcade off Bond Street in London, which is the main shopping center of high-end shopping in London. And uh, along this arcade, there's probably half a dozen British shoe shops. And he said, you need to go get a proper pair of British brogues. And he says, two, one brown, one black. Start with that and get rid of your loafers. So a learning experience for sure. But then it also helped me learn as a chief executive, much more managing an organization than managing money. And one of the benefits I found of being a chief executive officer is it made me a better investor. And that's surprising, but when you're a chief investment officer, every idea that you think up is a great idea. Why? Because it's yours. Of course, it's a great idea. But when you're a chief executive officer, you're going to ask things like, okay, how much money are you going to need to fund this? What's going to be our compliance overlay? What human capital are you going to need? What clients are going to buy this? What would be our distribution channel for distributing this idea? You start to ask the much more pragmatic questions that, that go around an investment idea. And having that pragmatic grounding that I got at Hermes has helped me through the rest of my career understand better when I'm coming up with an investment idea to start thinking about all those other pragmatic issues that might bubble up that go with it. So again, a great learning experience for being overseas, great learning experience for being embedded in a new culture, Great learning experience of being a chief executive as opposed to CIO and understanding what it means to manage a company and asking those practical questions that a chief executive should ask 
of their chief investment officer. Can you compare and contrast how the different to portfolio management? Are there differences between UK and US portfolio management approaches? So one thing in the United Kingdom and Europe more broadly, they were much earlier adopters and implementers of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. Uh, the Corporations Code in London, which enhanced and improved shareholder rights for shareholders in the UK was way in advance of anything that happened over here in the United States. And then the environmental aspect, trying to think what impact are we having in our investment portfolio more broadly on the environment, whether it's clean energy or clean tech, but more broadly starting to think about emissions. The Hermes, the UK asset management industry, and Europe more generally were, again, far ahead of that before the United States got on board. And so getting an early grounding of that while I was in the United Kingdom, that also is great for my own personal development as well as my professional career and understanding better those issues. And then your next stop was at Nuveen. Came back to Nuveen, back to the United States, Nuveen and Chicago. And by the way, I'm an old Chicago boy, my Northwestern degree, et cetera. So coming back to Chicago, it was a bit like a homecoming. But Nuveen is a traditional asset manager in the United States. The bulk of its clients are the mass affluence. So high net worth, but high net worth retail investors. And then a smaller segment of institutional investors. So when you have more of a retail presence, one of the things I learned at Nuveen, again, another building block that I didn't have in my portfolio of personal skills, was learning about distribution. CalPERS didn't have to worry about distribution. That was an in-house client. Hermes clients were primarily institutional. Again, clients that were familiar with dealing with a lot of pension plans were the clients of Hermes. Nuveen was very different. It was a much more retail-oriented shop, still is. Uh, again, with the mass affluent, which means high net worth, but high net worth at the retail side. So understanding how you build investment products to have mass distribution was one part of that. And understanding then the distribution channels, the broker-dealer, the independent RIA channel, the wholesalers working out of the trunk of their car, so to speak. That was just, again, a, another part of my education that I just, I had not appreciated and was not part of. The other thing that, that Naveen was good for was Naveen was what you call a multi-boutique. So we had the Naveen brand name, but under that, we had a number of individual boutiques, such as NWQ and trade. And as a result, I had to learn how to manage not only distribution channels and the overall company, but how to then to work with the individual investment teams. How are those underlying teams different from each other? So each individual company, whether it was Tradewinds or Winslow Capital in Minneapolis, each had their own chief executive and their own CIO. And so one of my jobs was to figure out, okay, as we have a different company over here that's maybe focusing on value equities and a different company over here that's fo focusing on equity growth, what are the gaps in our lineup? And how are those products complementary? And then how are we going to distribute those products such that we're not tripping over each other in, as we mark those products out to the broader industry? And so again, that was like putting the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together in terms of what boutiques we had under the Nuveen umbrella, what boutiques we might need to look for and bring in. How does that all build for our mass affluent clients? So one of the things we worked on back then, again, this is more than 10 years ago, was solutions-based investing. Now, what's that? That's, again, getting back to the liability stream. What liability stream are our clients trying to fund? And again, for the mass affluent, the retail investor, it's primarily two. It's a retirement and then, you know, their kids' college education and then probably getting their kids launched to boot. 
So how do we build products that will link up and help solve those liability streams? And so starting to bring solutions investing in Nuveen was one of the key innovations that we started back then. Up to that point, Nuveen had been mostly just a product manufacturer. So we started to pivot from a product manufacturer, just creating a new mutual fund, a new mutual fund, start trying to figure out how do all these mutual fund products work together so that we can build a solution to solve a liability stream. That was a different change of mindset that we brought into Nuveen. And that was a very important one. And that now continues to, to what they do today. When you ask family offices who they most admire, they always mention MSD and the Bass family office. How did you end up in that role there? And what did you find when you arrived? I got to know Bob Bass because we had overlapping investments when I was at CalPERS through building up our private capital portfolio. The Bass family is a very smart family, and they have quite a large investment in private capital. One of the great things about working for Bob Bass is I, when I brought a new investment idea to him, I never had to explain what. Let me explain what I mean by that. Typically, when you're in front of a pension plan and you're presenting a new investment idea, you first have to explain what that idea is. What is it? Then you can talk about why you're bringing it and where it fits in the portfolio. With Bob, I never had to explain the what. Very smart investor. He knew the what. His questions were, all right, Mark, why is that a better investment for our portfolio and where it's going to help generate additional returns? So bringing an investment idea to Bob, I always had to answer the why and the where, but never the what. And that was easier because, again, for most investors and a public pension plan in particular, you first you have to explain the what, then the why, then the where. And so that made it very easy in some respects, just focusing on why is this a good investment for the portfolio and where is it going to generate additional returns? So that was great. People think, gosh, you know, uh, Bob Bass is a billionaire. Maybe he comes into the office once a week. No, he's in the office at the beginning of every day and he stays until the end of every day. He works a full day. That's his business is investing. So he takes it very seriously and he's in the office with everyone else working a full day. He doesn't take a day off. So again, that's great because he was always accessible to sit down and talk through an investment idea or a theme I might have. And then just bounce it off his head because he's been a great investor himself. He has a lot of great ideas. And one of the things that, that Bob has done is you think of all the companies that he has seeded over time, TPG, Lone Star, Oak Hill Capital, Oak Hill Advisors, Dorsal, Lucerne. He has been great at finding investment talent, giving them some capital to invest in and some seed capital to, to start a company, and then turning them loose and letting them grow. He just has a great eye for finding investment talent. And again, that was fun just to be part of all that. So I thoroughly enjoyed working for Bob Bass and the Bass family. Do you think people should think differently about family office portfolios? It does vary. So within the Bass family, you had Bob and his main portfolio, but then there was also the next generation down. Part of what you think about when you're working with a high net worth family is how do you build a portfolio for them? And one of the ideas that we came up with was in terms of the overall asset allocation and constructing a portfolio was having a category in that asset allocation called just simply lifestyle assets. What portion of that portfolio do you want to use to support whatever philanthropic endeavors you wish to pursue? And so thinking about an individual within the Bass family as not so much portfolio for an individual, but portfolio more like a, for a foundation. Yes, we want to build up growth assets. Yes, we want to invest in private capital, capture the long-term liquidity premium. What goals do you have? Do you have any philanthropy you want to pursue? And okay, let's allocate for that. 
And let's build a portfolio that's building it up like a foundation or an endowment where you have some spending need so that you're giving out capital every year to pursue whatever philanthropic goals you have. And that was neat to work on that because every person's different. Every individual in a family office will have different views about how they want to spend their wealth, what good they want to do with it, what sort of philanthropy they want to pursue, and then how do you build a portfolio to accomplish all that? So what are the liability streams, again, for lifestyle spending, for long-term capital appreciation, but also for pursuing philanthropic goals? Again, fascinating problems to solve and fun to work on. And how does the family think about transferring governance from one generation to the next? And how involved is the investment staff in that? It varies from family office to family office. There, There is the old joke that if you've seen one family office, you've seen one. Each family office handles that differently. And again, I don't want to get into too much detail about the Bass family. The Again, you just have to sit down and think about, all right, how are you going to transfer this wealth? Are you going to do it contractually through estate planning? Are you going to do it financially by distributing some of the portfolio now and start to, to dribble it out to the next generation? Those are some of the critical issues that have to be asked and solved in every family office. And again, each family office is different, so I, I wish I had a standard template. I could say, here's how you go about it. But it really comes down to is what's your investment governance structure today? Then how do you think about passing on that investment wealth to the next generation tomorrow? And again, is that done contractually through estate planning? Or are you going to try and do that today by dispersing some of the wealth right now? And again, it's going to be different for every family office. What do you think about the different access to opportunities you had at these various positions? Oh, gosh, it's let's compare and contrast Calcutters and the Bass family office. The Bass family, starting with that, is such a wonderful brand name, for lack of a better term. It opens just about any door. And it's not only because of the investment acumen of the Bass family, which is incredible. It's also the Bass family is incredibly generous in terms of the philanthropy they pursue. That Literally the hundreds of millions of dollars that they've given away to hospitals, universities, charities. So when you're such a smart investor and you're such a generous individual and family at the same time, you can pretty much get a meeting with anyone. Let's go to Kelper's given its sheer bulk. Believe me, there's lots of people that will welcome CalPERS into their office. But let me tell you some of the places where it's harder for CalPERS to invest. The venture capital industry, for a couple of reasons. One, the venture capital industry, wonderful industry, but it's smaller in terms of size. It's hard for someone the size of CalPERS to invest the sheer bulk of its AUM in venture capital enough that it would have an impact. Also, venture capital, just the nature of that industry is a much more discreet industry because you're trying to nurture startup companies outside the public eye where they're not getting a lot of scrutiny. So they have time to grow, make mistakes, relearn and grow some more. That's hard to do when you bring the fishbowl and the huge spotlight of a public organization on top of a private company like that. So venture capital is an area for CalPERS that, that's very difficult for them to, to one, either get access or two, to be able to commit as much capital as it would be needed to have an impact. So that's just two data points. I probably could give you more, but let me stop there. I'm curious if you look for a different set of skills when you're trying to attract talent to a place like CalPERS versus a family office. I think there's, there's a couple things that I'm looking for. The first is if someone who's got some trade ticket experience like me, if you're looking for someone on the investment side, has that person actually put their name on a trade ticket and sweated the details of that trade ticket? There, there's nothing better when you're in a learning experience is to have 
first line, first seat authority or accountability for an investment idea. And just simply, again, to reiterate, it's just saying, you know what, your name's on that trade ticket. So if that trade goes well, you get all the accolades. But if that trade goes bad, you know, you're the one who's on the hot seat to say, gosh, that maybe was not a good idea. So that's one thing I look for. The second is some sense of maturity. It's difficult to be in the investment world. You know, mistakes will be made. No one is perfect. And we all make mistakes. I've made plenty of investment mistakes in my career. You have to have the maturity to, to one, recognize the mistake, two, admit it, three, learn for it, and then four, apply it in the future. And I've seen this with a lot of young staff. Make a mistake and then just, oh my God, I made a mistake. And they get all wrapped up and they just can't get past that. And what I tell them is, admit it, own up to it, learn from it, apply it, and then move on. Get over yourself, get over it. We all make mistakes. Just learn from it, apply it in the future, and move on from there. You've got to have the maturity to be able to do that. Not many people do. The last thing I look for is just someone who's creative. I have a lot of creative ideas. Most of them are like a couple of loose marbles rolling around in my head. I spit them out on occasion and they turn out to be good or not so good. But you keep thinking and you keep coming up with ideas. And eventually one of those ideas, hey, that's a pretty good idea. Let's try that. So those are the three things I'm looking for. You once said the truth is that there is a continuum between pure beta at one end and pure alpha at the other end. The trick for every asset manager is to decide where they want to position themselves on the alpha-beta continuum. Could you explain what you meant and how this could be useful to a PM? Thank you for reading at least one of my papers. That was much appreciated. So yes, there is a paper I wrote, gosh, more than 10 years ago called The Beta Continuum. I think I wrote it in 2008 or nine, so right after the great financial crisis. And then I revised it just a few years ago in the Journal of Portfolio Management. What I was trying to indicate is it used to be binary, beta versus alpha. What wasn't beta was alpha and vice versa. That's no longer the case anymore, especially with the explosion of ETFs, exchange-traded funds. We start to see a little bit of, of alpha being added into the beta or more beta being added into the alpha. So when you think of a traditional active mutual fund that's trying to outperform the S&P 500, embedded in the return stream is a lot of beta, a lot of systematic market risk. And one of the things you need to do when you're looking at this continuum of beta versus alpha is figure out how much beta actually is embedded in that product. And the reason why that's critical is you really can't measure a manager's true value add, their true alpha, until you account for all the beta. So as you go along that continuum from pure beta, which would be an index fund, to pure alpha, let's say a hedge fund, there's a continuum of products along that space. So you can go from a pure beta and index fund to an ETF that's trying to track Bitcoin now, some would call that pure alpha, to an ETF that might have some tactical asset allocation embedded in. So now you're trying to blend in some alpha on top of the beta to traditional mutual funds, which have a lot of beta in them while they're trying to perform some index to a hedge funds. And by the way, all hedge funds claim that they're all pure alpha, and that's rarely the case. And then you get into private capital where we have what we call the lagged betas, trying to figure out how much systematic risk is embedded in illiquid acid classes. But it gets back to the point that before you can measure the alpha of a manager, you have to measure what amount of beta is embedded in their investment stream. And once you remove all the beta, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the alpha. And so it's critical when you think about this beta continuum to understand, again, just how much beta is embedded in whatever investment product you're purchasing and what's left over should be the alpha. And the trick is trying to measure that beta as carefully as you can 
So you really get a true sense of how much extra return or value add that active manager is bringing to the table. Could you dig in a little bit more on your concept of lagged beta? I know you've written about it quite a bit over the years and what your current thinking is on it. Yeah, it's fascinating. The Gosh, the first paper I wrote about lag beta is about 20 years old. And this comes back to my days at CalPERS. Back then, I had a consultant in my office, and I won't embarrass the name of the consultant, but they were showing me some research they'd done on private capital. And they were saying, gosh, Mark, you should load up on private capital, which indeed I believed I should. But they were saying it has such a low beta compared to the stock market. And they showed me their research. They showed me their capital asset pricing model. And they showed me the beta that came out of that. And indeed, when I looked at it, the beta of private equity was low compared to the public markets. And I remember sitting in my office saying, well, that just doesn't sound right. Yeah, I see the research that this beta of private equity is low compared to the S&P 500. Private equity is still equity. Shouldn't the beta be higher? And so I began to think about this problem. Again, one of these loose marbles rattling around in my head. And what occurred to me is, you know, private capital, private equity is an illiquid asset class. So it doesn't move up and down as frequently as the stock market. The stock market goes up and down every day, whereas private equity values are marked quarter to quarter. So I was saying, gosh, maybe there is some time delay. I wasn't thinking of lags exactly back then. I was just thinking maybe there's some time delay between what we see in the market and that eventually gets into the private equity portfolios. So one of the things I did is I said, I wonder what happens if you just take last quarter's S&P 500 and regress it on this quarter's private capital returns. Let's just see what happens. And lo and behold, I found a positive beta. I said, all right, let's go back another quarter. And I found yet another positive beta. And what I found through my research is that, indeed, it takes time for what we see in the up and down movement of the S&P 500 to wash through private capital portfolios. They're just not marked to market frequently. And this creates a delay between what you the public markets actually getting into private markets. And that delay just simply means it takes time. And I call this the lagged beta effect. And what I've discovered through my research, and I've, as you said, I've written probably now half a dozen papers on this topic, it's very consistent over the time. And so I can tell you with <clears throat> pretty much clear certainty that it takes about three quarters of lagged public market returns to finally get embedded into what's in your private equity portfolio today. And it takes about four quarters of public market returns, four lagged quarters to get into venture capital, and five, if you can believe it, to get into real estate. So this lagging effect is just a way to measure that systematic risk, how much of that systematic risk is embedded in private equity and venture capital and real estate. And if you read these papers, you, it's actually a pretty simple equation. You can do it in a spreadsheet, which is where I do it. But the key point gets back to my earlier theme. In every asset class, every investment stream, no matter what you look at, you have to be able to measure how much beta is embedded in that return stream. Only then can you determine how much extra value that active manager is adding to you. And by the way, this lagged concept, it also works for hedge funds. There's a lot of lagged market return in hedge fund return streams. And so you have to take that into account before you measure the what I call the true alpha of hedge fund managers. So... That's, that was a little technical, but it, and also a lot long-winded, but it gives you a sense that you have to really account for all these lagged periods in illiquid asset classes to get a full amount or full measure of beta in their portfolio. Do you have any insight into why the lag is, is so much longer in real estate? First, it's the longest term 
or tenured as a class. People have been hold on to real estate office buildings for years and years and years. So that's one reason. Second, it is much more appraisal based than private equity. Private equity tends to use, they either look for some new round of financing to mark up or down, or they may use an option pricing model. But again, those rounds of financing or option pricing models are only being used on a quarter by quarter basis. So there's still quite a bit of a lag. It's just real estate being such a long-tailed investment is why it's, one, so illiquid, and two, why it takes so much time to account for all those lags. I think the idea of lag beta can help us now in the current markets. Obviously, there's a major revaluation happening. How could we apply that technique? Well, in light of the banking crisis, which I think that's one of the things we should look at right now, and its impact on Silicon Valley broadly and the venture capital ecosystem broadly. We've seen how the almost near demise of Silicon Valley Bank has caused ripple effects into the venture capital industry and ecosystem. I would imagine that there's going to be some marks going down in venture capital. And what it may do is it may accelerate venture capital firms taking those marks down just to recognize them now. So it might, in fact, shorten the lagging period that we observe with venture capital. Uh, again, that's an opinion, not a fact. We'll have to see if that actually translates into reality. But that's my expectation, is that we'll start to see venture capital and private equity managers saying, all right, we all know that the banking industry has taken a bit of a hit right now. Let's ev evaluate our marks, and maybe we should write them down if that's appropriate. How has your own tech stack changed over the years? Do you find the granularity of data available now useful or perhaps formidable? Oh, gosh. A couple things. One of the things when we think about artificial intelligence, and everyone talks about that, and how it might be applied, certainly the more data points you have, the, the more you can apply artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence needs data to be fed into it in order to develop any form of intelligence, whether it's artificial or not. And by the way, all of us have artificial intelligence embedded in our smartphones in one way or the other, where these apps try and guess what, we, what they want us to do or what they think we want to do. So artificial intelligence is in all parts of our lives nowadays. But back to the granularity of data, it's just that we have much better data, particularly in the illiquid space. There are much better data providers. There's much larger databases. You can now cut that data along different streams. And that allows you to start to think a little bit more specifically about how you may want to fine-tune a portfolio. So, for example, we see more data in the secondaries market. That gives us a better sense of where the opportunity set might be in terms of where discounts might be or where we could find good buying opportunities for our secondary team. So I think the granularity of data always sounds great. More data. Everyone says, gosh, would you like more of anything? Yeah, generally I'd like more of anything. So more data sounds great. It's how you actually apply it and think about it and use it in a constructive manner. More data in and of itself doesn't help you make better decisions. It's how you can apply some technology overlay onto that to uh, to just do that, implement it. Let, let me give you an example. So I babble less and, and talk more about a concrete example. Back to beta. When we look at our hedge fund managers, we have something we call our periodic table of beta factors. Why do we call it that? Well, it looks like a periodic table of chemical elements. We have a periodic table of beta elements. And so we look at 15 different beta elements now for our hedge fund managers. And that's, again, a systematic risk that we can create our, ourselves in a passive format at a very low fee. And so we use these 15 beta factors first to just dissect up every hedge fund manager's return stream to better understand what's beta and what's alpha. 
And then we look at all those beta factors across a hedge fund manager compared to the other beta factors of the other hedge fund managers in our portfolio. And the reason we do that is we want to get better diversification of all those beta factors. Again, it gets back to the granularity. We can now slice and dice up a hedge fund manager's return stream into 15 beta factors. That's the granularity. And then we look at those 15 beta factors compared to all the other hedge fund managers in our portfolio already to get a better sense of how we balance all those beta factors so we're not getting bouncing up one beta factor on top of another and getting overlapping bets into our portfolio. Another way to think about it is every hedge fund manager on a standalone basis may look like a great hedge fund manager. What's more important is how does that hedge fund manager look when it's blended in with all your other hedge fund managers? Are they bringing in overlapping bets into the portfolio or are they bringing something new and dynamic into the portfolio? And that's what we use our periodic table of beta factors to do is to figure out how are all the beta factors associated with that hedge fund manager blending in with our existing beta managers. So that's an example of using the granularity of data in a constructive process to build a better portfolio. Data, more data by itself doesn't mean something good is going to come out of it unless you know how to apply it. I'd love for you to talk a bit about the Twigo Foundation, which I know you've been involved with for a long time and has done great work. Sue Twigo and her husband founded it. I've been involved with this for 20 plus years. I first met Sue Twigo when I was at Calper, gosh, about 20 years ago, when I was just a young kid managing a pension plan. And I met her back then when I was introducing Calper's Emerging Manager Program. And that was Calper's first foray into bringing in diverse managers into the portfolio. And 20 years ago, there wasn't a lot of data on diverse managers or emerging manager programs. And so I didn't have a lot to go on other than some moral support. And Sue was one of the people who gave me some of that moral support that, yes, Mark, this is a good idea. You're doing the right thing. Stick with it. Yes, you're sticking your neck out a little, but you're on the right path. And it was nice to get that support and hear from someone else that, yeah, this is a good idea, Mark. And from there, I got more involved in the Twigo Foundation. So what is the Twigo Foundation? It helps men and women of color get into the top business schools in the United States. And then we not only help them get into their application process, we then provide scholarships. We provide anywhere from 20 to 40 scholarships a year. It's amazing what the Twigo Foundation has accomplished. And then we help mentor those Twigo scholars once they get through Harvard, Columbia, Wharton, Stanford, et cetera. Again, getting them into the top business schools, paying for their education, and then helping to mentor them when they get out. And now there are literally hundreds of Twigo alums out there that are embedded in society and in the asset management industry and business in general. So it's been an amazing success story. And Sue Twigo is still very active in the Twigo Foundation. So it's one of the proudest things in my resume. Excellent. Mark Anson, thank you for joining us and thank you for your great insights. My pleasure today. Thank you for all the great questions. I've been reading one or two of the papers. My gosh, that's above and beyond the call of duty. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.